All right, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 20 as we continue our study of this gospel. Today we are confronted with another parable. And like all parables, it's there to simultaneously reveal and conceal. And so we need to be very careful lest we get turned aside and miss, miss the heart of what our Lord is telling us. Let's read. The Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise your name. You indeed are holy. And you are both just and generous. Lord forbid that we should begrudge your right to be God. Grant that we would be found faithful. And that we would love you. And not the perceived benefit we get from you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you. Who is God to you? Well, how would you describe God? Uh, and hopefully most of you would answer something along the lines of, of, the, uh, of the shorter catechism. Uh, 
Some of you might say some other objective statements about God, which are hopefully the kind of objective statements you might make are hopefully true, such as he's, he's good, God is holy, God is loving, etc. But what's your experience of God? Your experience of God, what kind of God do you say he is? And, and for what purpose do you find yourself relating to this God? We come today to a parable that is unique to Matthew. And we've said in previous months that Matthew is the Jewish gospel. It's the most Jewish of the gospels, of the four gospels written. And so I ask you to consider that there might be the little hook right there. What is it, perhaps, that the Jewish mind might have needed to hear that made this episode included in this gospel, whereas it's not in others? And then how does that relate to all of us? Well, this, this passage is not just some random thought of Jesus. It's actually included as the illustration of the point Jesus made at the very end of our previous chapter. If you look back to the last verse of chapter 19, chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus, having just talked to Peter about the issue of rewards to those who have given up things to follow Jesus, Jesus adds this, uh, this addendum, if you will, this, this caveat, if you will. After having said, surely I tell you they'll receive back a hundredfold. In verse 30 of chapter 19, Jesus says this, but... Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then we begin our passage today. What's the first word of chapter 20, verse 1? Four. So it's the illustrative point of what he was saying at the end of chapter 19, and then at the end of this parable, what does Jesus say in verse 16? Verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. And if you're paying careful attention, Jesus so puts the parentheses perfectly that he, he makes a subtle shift in the way he presents that syllogism. In chapter 19, verse 30, he begins with the first being last and the last being first. And in chapter 20, verse 16, he concludes this episode by putting attention on the last. The last will be first and the first last. So he, he's drawing attention in the one hand to the fact that the people on who, who consider themselves, who reckon themselves the first, will find themselves experiencing something that they may not so like. And then on the other hand, he 
puts the last first that the people who thought they had nothing will find themselves receiving something that perhaps they didn't expect. The syllogism is awesome. And by inverting it and putting parentheses around this story, we have this awesome picture. But what is it about? What is the point of this picture? We've talked about parables in the past and how it's easy to get led astray by, by the inherent qualities of the parable, to get turned aside and focusing on the wrong things. Uh, this parable has a rather unique history in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, it was, th th this parable was, was, I would say, ripped out of its context and used to show in the early labor movement that God was anti-worker. Why? One, because seniority mattered not a, not a thing. No seniority. Your union seniority scale doesn't matter here. And, the, and it strongly asserts that the owner has the right to do what he wants. And so it was held up before labor unions as Christianity is incompatible with the struggles of the working man. It was even then abused and used by early by people who were trying to bring communism into the American mainstream with, with its misguided emphasis on everybody getting the same. Whether you worked one hour or 12, you got the same. Whew. Unique social history to this passage, and all of it is wrong. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you right now, this passage is not told by Jesus to tell you how you got to pay your employees. You will go out of business if you give someone who works one hour the same wage that you give somebody who works all day. Okay? This passage is not about that kind of thing at all. In fact, the passage makes its point precisely because in the natural order of things, we think it's kind of unfair. Oh, sure, we're happy for the guys who worked all who worked one hour. Wow, that's great. But we resonate with the guys who worked all stinking day. In the heat, in the sun, they were hungry, they were thirsty, they had to go to the bathroom, and they get paid the same amount. And, and quite frankly, if we're going to be really honest, we can say, we can line up and say, yes, the... Yes, the property owner is just. I mean, he, they agreed to work for the wage, and they get the wage, but we all know that in view of giving someone who worked an hour that same wage, we would find that almost maliciously, punctiliously lawyerly. And that person would not have a good reputation in the community, would he? Because we resonate so with those who have worked all the day long. And that's where Jesus' point comes in. Because we look at this and we go, that's not very fair. I mean, sure, it's nice, but it's not fair. And could it be that that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say? I want you to make a note of this right here, brothers and sisters. This passage is all about the fact that grace is lavish and generous 
But grace is not fair. And hallelujah. This passage is told on the heels of someone, a rich young man, having come to Jesus. What must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus has his number. You must keep the commandments. And, and he says, well, I've done all these commandments. And Jesus says, well, then go and sell all your stuff and follow me. And the guy turns away sad because his money was where his heart was at. And Jesus says that it's harder for a, for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And then the, the disciples famously say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible. With God all things are possible. And then Peter reflects back on what he had just told the man. That if he gave up everything and followed Jesus, he would have reward in heaven. So then Peter asks the question, well, we gave up everything, so what do we get? And then Jesus, I tell you, you'll receive crowns and all this great stuff, and anybody who gives up family, lands, position, name, all that will receive a hundredfold. And then there's the little caveat, the little warning, but Many will, of the first will be last and the last first. This passage is teaching us a lot about the attitude we have in regards to the Lord and the attitude we have in regards to our service and how we're relating to God will oftentimes determine our appreciation for the things and the works of God. Consider in Jesus' day, all the religious establishment, the holy, the holy people, they absolutely resented that Jesus would receive repentant sinners. It's important to remember that some of the popular things you've heard are just not true. Uh, Jesus didn't revel with sinners. He didn't tell them to just keep on doing their thing. No, he called them out of it, and the people who came to him were repentant, but that wasn't good enough for the religious establishment because they had to first, you know, clean themselves up themselves and, and get right with God, and then they could come to Jesus, and that's wrong. But they resented that Jesus would eat with them just as they were being eaten with. And, and here in this most Jewish of Gospels, we have this story, and we see, I think, this being played out in the early years of the church where you have all these Jewish converts, these Jews. Ours are the covenants of promise. Ours are the patriarchs. Ours is the worship. Ours the glory. And they're going to have to wrestle with. And now God's receiving Gentiles. These filthy, dirty, nasty Gentiles. And they're going to struggle with that. And you see it in the book of Acts, don't we? They struggle with the inclusion of the Gentiles. And you, you, you see it even in Galatians where, where Peter is confronted by Paul. They struggled with this. But deep down, 
What we are to be concerned with here is the fact that if you approach God as if you are earning your way or that you are serving him in such a way that he owes you blessing, you are going to find God's grace offensive. And you're going to find it odious, and you're going to grumble, and you're going to be envious. And and here's the funny thing. People actually think that they are the first hired. They think there's a seniority system in place. Oh, I've been a Christian a long time. I've served the Lord a long time. Therefore, I'm earning something. They think that there's a first place. But the reality is, if, if, if someone were to pause for just a moment and reflect upon the totality of Scripture, Jesus is not saying that any of you people are the first hired, and some of you are at six, some of you are at nine, and some of you are at 11. He's creating a situation where it's only the first and only the last that are juxtaposed. There's the people who think they are relating to God on the basis of justice. You said, and I'm doing it, so I expect it. And these people, that's not the bargain. They didn't do, and you're still giving it. There's the people who think that they can relate to God on the basis of merit. But here's the thing. If you look at all of Scripture, does any one of us really relate on the basis of merit? No. The only people who relate to God are on the basis of grace. So what this passage is is calling us to see, it's not that some of you are hired first and some last. The passage is calling you to see, you must see yourself as among the last. Because if you think that you stand before God on the basis of merit and attainment, grace is going to be offensive to you. Generosity of God is going to be odious to you. And I think the Bible underscores how we should view ourselves as among the last. All of us consider, reckon that that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by nature objects of what? God's wrath. So that even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, what does he say? Last of all, about who the Lord appeared. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I am the least of the apostles. Not worthy to be called an apostle. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And then we learn in 1 Timothy 1.15 that great saying. It's not just a factoid about Paul and his the, 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 the severity, the gradated severity of Paul's sin. He begins by saying, this saying is trustworthy and true. So what's the saying? Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm better than some but not as bad as others. No, I am the worst. So what we learn in Scripture is that the attitude of every single one of us should be, I don't deserve 
a thing good from God. But yet, what do I get from God? Grace upon grace upon grace. And so when we see in this passage that, that grace is, is offensive to those who, who are in it for what they perceive they can get from God, I should be and you should be celebrating the fact that God doesn't deal with us on the basis of our merit and our contract. He deals with us on the basis of grace. And so we receive riches upon riches and we have, we have the hope of a certain future of ruling and reigning with Christ, not because we earned it, but because in his generosity, he bestows it. Our God is a generous God. But is your heart resentful of that? When you look around and see what God bestows on others in his sovereign freedom to be God, do, do you resent it? Or do you acknowledge, not my will, O oh Lord, but yours. Thank you for what you have given to me. And thank you for the fact that I deserve nothing, but you have given me all this. He has promised us much. And he gives us much and it's all by grace. So what is your motivation for service? He, he, he subtly, gently, but still clearly rebukes Peter's inquiry from 1927. What is your motivation for following? Remember the warning of Jesus earlier in this book in Matthew 6, 2, or 6, 5, where when praying, he says to beware the hypocrites and those who like to stand on the street corners and pray, for they have received their reward in full. There are those who are following God, or they've aligned at least with the visible church, because they're seeking some sort of public Accolade. They want the social benefits of being affiliated with the church. And it's less so now, now that the veneer of, of, of this is worn off in the American culture. But it's still the case that people are looking for some sort of temporal benefit that they think God will give them if they line themselves with him. Are you serving God for the sake of, I don't know, a happier family? Are you serving God thinking that uh, you'll, you'll have a healthier life or a, or a longer life? What are you serving God for? Remember the lessons of the earlier parables. The kingdom is to be like a treasure. And you're looking. You're looking for, for this treasure and then you find it. And this treasure is so sublime that the thing itself is worth selling everything you have to get it. Or maybe you're, you're not looking for it and you were just out there and, and, and you stumble upon it. But upon stumbling upon it, you immediately go, oh my goodness, I didn't know I was looking for this, but this is the best thing ever and I want to have it. 
and you give up everything for it. These two parables teach us and they align with the great commandment. That the great commandment is not do this and do that and, and, and it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You, you, you see, are you serving God because God is lovely and you find God to be satisfying to your soul? Or do you just serve God because he's got the power to give you the things that you want? If you're looking for a deal from God, you're going to find grace offensive. God's grace is given to the undeserving. And he loves to lavish it. Have you received it? If you've received his grace offered to you in Christ Jesus, know that it is not because you earned it. It is because in his love he was delighted to give it to you as a gift. And having received that gift, you are to find him whole, satisfying, pure, and true. And he will give you all the things he has promised because God is both gracious and just. Let us pray. Almighty God, we praise you that you saved us, the greatest of sinners. We ask that in this life, we would find you true because you have revealed yourself and proven yourself true. May we in our experience of you. Celebrate the grace you give and not begrudge it, revealing that our hearts are mercenary and that we want things from you rather than you. Be with us. Conform us increasingly to the image of our Lord by your spirit. Amen.